Well, welcome to all of you. It's great to be with you today here in, at Faith and in Troy. And for those of you who are watching at home, it's great to have you with us today. We are in the third part of our series um, called Hindsight is 2020. Special shout out to Sammy uh, across the pond as we were talking about this this morning. I thought, um, I wonder if this uh, reference even translates for, for our friends who are watching today um, over in England. And if not, um, it's okay. I'm sure Jesus will have it all sorted by the time we are done. Now, in this series, we've been talking about this idea that even though every single one of us, we are all more than ready, right? We are more than ready for things to get back to normal, right? Whatever normal, normal is. Um, we said the truth is it would really be a shame to go through all of this pain and not actually learn anything from it. In fact, we said that would actually be quite, quite lame, right? Because we recognize that experience doesn't make you wiser, um, that experience, in fact, just makes you older, that evaluated experience actually makes you wiser. Evaluated experience is what makes you better, right? Unevaluated experiences, those just leave us bitter because we recognize that for all of us, right, when it just comes to how we act and how we behave and how we interact with each other, um, reacting, it simply sets us up to become a reflection, a reflection of the events that we despise, the people um, that, that we just can't get along with. It, it even sets us up for the possibility of lo losing our own legacy. But throughout the course of this series, each week we've been talking uh, about um, kind of a really big idea, the idea that a right response, a thoughtful response, if you're a follower of Jesus, a faith-filled response in the midst of pain and suffering, that actually has the power to redeem pain and suffering, right? Because again, and this is so important, right, choosing a faith-filled response to suffering our ability to choose a response rather than simply reacting, right, rather than simply repeating what it is that we've experienced, a faith-filled response to pain and suffering is what thwarts the evil intent of evil people. And in times of crisis and in times of adversity, especially in times of uncertainty, like all of us are living in right now, this is what prevents us from simply becoming victims, Right, victims of adversity, victims of hostility, victims of whatever tools the kingdoms of this world try to use to, to shut out and to take away the light that Jesus has brought to and offered to all of us. Because like we said last week, our God, our, our crucified God, our, our nailed God, the God of Jesus, He is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. And so consequently, if we are His followers, if we are His disciples, then our response to pain and suffering, that should be different as well. And so when things go bad, right, when things become difficult, when we are most, um, uh, most confronted with the opportunity to kind of circle the wagons and close our hands and close our hearts and just focus on me and myself and my situation and my family, we said that is absolutely the most important time to make use of the tools of our king and the tools of his kingdom, right? We, we said this, compassion, kindness, hospitality, and love. The reason we do these things isn't to try to gain something for ourselves. No, it's because this is the teaching of our king. This is the teaching. This is the way of Jesus' kingdom. Now, if you're just joining us today for the first time, if you're watching for the first time today, obviously you're kind of coming in um, during the middle of the movie, but that's okay. You can catch up anytime. You can simply go to our website, or even better than that, um, find our YouTube channel, and there you can catch up on whatever you've missed here on Sunday mornings. But even better than that, this is also a great place for you to go to experience live worship when you are not with us. Because if you're at all anything like me, right, so for me but also probably for you, 
There is nothing like worship to help me refocus my attention in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of anxiety. There's nothing like worship to help me refocus my attention on my King. Now, throughout this series, we've been looking at this promise, um, this whole promise of redeeming pain and suffering. And we said this is a really big promise, right? This is a big promise, and not only is it a big promise, it's a promise that is easy to miss. Because the response that has the potential to reverse the the natural course of things, we said this isn't natural. The the response that has the power to redeem pain and suffering, as we're going to see today, in the life of a person, in the life of a family, it is not the natural response. And so that's why we're talking about it together, because I don't want any of you to miss this. Because again, the, the, the center, at the center of our faith, right, the center of our faith, um, we said what we discover is a man who, surrend- when he had the opportunity to, to be set free, he ended up surrendering to his enemies. He actually chose not to defend himself in his own trial. And when given the chance, he chose not to save himself, all of which are very unnatural behaviors, right? But as a result of this, he saved you and he saved me. And so we should never underestimate the power of choosing a faith-filled response in the midst of suffering. Now, for the next two weeks, we are going to turn our attention, as I told you last week, we're going to turn our attention to a character in the Old Testament um, who who modeled this for us in a truly incredible way. And part of what makes um, how he modeled this for us so incredible is that he didn't do this just for a season. He didn't do this just for a couple of months. In fact, he actually modeled um, this idea of a faith-filled response in the midst of suffering over the course of 30 years, right? And at the conclusion of his life, the Scripture records for us um, kind of his summation of what a faith-filled response in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering, what that looks like. A sanity-preserving, faith-restoring, situation-redeeming response to suffering. And the problem is, is that as soon as we look at this, many of you are going to know exactly who we're talking about and exactly what what the story is that we're going to look at together today. And so I'm going to ask for all of us um, that that you just kind of suspend um, your minds for for a moment when you see this. For those of you who kind of figure this out, just kind of don't rush to the end of the story in your mind. Just try to stay in the moment as, as best you can. Because again, I don't want any of us to miss this. This is how this person's story actually ends. It ends by him saying this, you intended to harm me. Now, if you know this story, then you know the you in this story um, were the people in control, right? The people with all the power, the people um, whose favor the odds were always stacked with. And these people, right, again, if you know the story, then you know they had evil. They had evil in their hearts. Now, some of you, you already know the person whose story we're we're talking about together, Um, but if you do, then you'll remember um, these people, right, these people that we're talking about in this story, they created circumstances that normally transformed victims into perpetrators, right? They created circumstances that normally caused the innocent to take on the character and the characteristics of the guilty, but not this time. Not this time, because you intended to harm me, but God, right? But God. God intended it for good. 
And see, God's intentions in this story that we're going to look at, they became a reality through one individual's unexpected, unnatural, faith-filled response to pain and suffering unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced in our lives. And again, don't miss this. Responses, right? Responses, none of which seemed to matter at the time, and no single response appeared to make any visible, noticeable, or practical difference to this individual's situation. But when taken together, all of these responses collectively would provide for the unfolding story of your faith and mine. Now, here is the backstory of the, one of the greatest stories that has ever been told. In 2000 BC, our Heavenly Father, He entered into the mess of our broken world by appearing to, by speaking to a man by the name of Abram, who we know as Abraham, and telling Abraham that I'm going to start over. I'm going to begin a, a whole new thing, and Abraham, I've chosen you. In fact, I'm going to make you into a nation, and all the people of the entire world, they will be blessed one day, Abraham, through you, through one of the nations that you are going to become a father of. And if you know the story, then you know that eventually Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. And see, this is the part of the story that we so often miss because, um, because well, the, the story is just so obvious and so familiar to, to so many of us. But God's plan, right? God's um, intention, God's response, God's entire plan, it dangled by a thread numerous times based on the unnatural responses to random, unfair, unexpected suffering, persecution, and violence that was experienced by one of Jacob's 12 sons, a son by the name of Joseph. Now, Joseph, if you know, Joseph was his father Jacob's favorite son by his father Jacob's favorite wife. That's the part they don't ever tell you about in Sunday school when you look at the story of Joseph, right? And if we just think about that statement right there, that could be like the summation of a whole series of, of life lessons, right? And now Joseph, um, Joseph, whether Jacob, you know, was aware of this or not, um, Joseph was, was very much not loved by his older brothers because Jacob um, did not hide the fact that Joseph was his favorite son. And either Joseph didn't, Jacob didn't care about how his brothers treated him or he, he wasn't aware of what was going on. And Jacob would continually send Joseph out to go check on his brothers and report back to him. And often Joseph brought an unexpected or unfavorable response of how his brothers were doing. And so one day, on one particular day, um, jo Jacob sends Joseph out to report back on his brothers. His brothers see him coming um, from miles away, and they start talking about Joseph. And by the time Joseph reaches them, um, the brothers have decided, um, we're done with this, right? We are over this. We are not having this anymore. And so they strip Joseph naked, and they throw him into the bottom of a dried-up well, and as Joseph is sitting in the bottom of this well, he can hear his own brothers, right, his own brothers having the following conversation several feet above him. Should we kill him, or should we just simply let nature take his course? Right, should we kill him? Imagine this. Should we kill him, or should we just let him starve to death? And that's when Joseph's story takes a very 
unexpected turn. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, Judah wasn't the oldest brother, but he was the leader of the brothers. Judah said, well, what will we gain if we kill our brother and we cover up his blood? In other words, if we're going to get dirty, right, we might as well get something out of this personally. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites were slave traders. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. I mean, after all, right, they're so kind. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so Joseph's brothers, they end up selling him to a group of slave traders. They lie to their father, Jacob. They tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal, and they break, they break their father's heart. And then Joseph's story actually picks up in chapter 39 and in verse 1, where we read this. Now, Joseph, Joseph was taken down to Egypt to Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials. He was the captain of the guard, and Potiphar bought, right? Potiphar bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, this is the first place in this story where perhaps Joseph's story begins to interact with your story. Because, see, nobody was looking for Joseph and nobody was looking out for Joseph. And perhaps that is exactly how you feel right now. Nobody is looking for you and nobody is looking out for you. Or so it seems. Because the next verse tells us something very unexpected. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, this simple statement, we've got to pause here for a minute, because this simple statement actually causes some significant problems for some versions of of Christianity. In fact, this may be the reason why you walked away from your growing up version of faith, your growing up version of church. Um, This may be the, the very reason why you did that because of the issue of suffering in the world. Maybe not even suffering in the world, maybe suffering in your world, maybe suffering um, for you personally or suffering in your family. Because you could not reconcile, right? And I get this. If this is you, I totally get this. You could not reconcile the idea of a good and loving God with the issue of pain and suffering in the world. Because the way that we think is this, right? I mean, this is it. If the Lord was with Joseph, then the Lord would have protected Joseph, If the Lord was actually with Joseph, Joseph wouldn't have been sold off to the slave traders, right? If the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph would not found himself at the bottom of a well. If the Lord was actually with Joseph, the Lord would have protected Joseph from the Ishmaelites and from his brothers because after all, what we think, this is just kind of the assumption, right? When God is with you, then things work out for you. Now, if you grew up, if you grew up with this idea or this version of Christianity, if you grew up in a faith tradition that maybe supported or encouraged or or believed in this idea or this view of God, this is so important that you understand this. Followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus have never, ever, ever believed this. Followers of Jesus have never believed that that this was true. If you left your faith because you could not reconcile the idea of a good and loving God with pain and suffering in the world, perhaps, perhaps you actually left your faith unnecessarily. Or the other way that I could say this is like this. 
If you quit believing in a good God who allows bad things to happen to good people, then congratulations. You quit believing in a God that does not exist. He is certainly not the God of the Bible. He is not the God of Jesus. He's not the God. That is not the God of the New Testament. Because when you open up this book over and over and over again, in the pages of this book, Old Testament and New Testament, we find men and women who suffer extreme adversity in the course of their lives, and yet who understand and who learn that God is with them in it, and God is with them through it. Because again, remember, at the very center of our faith, what we find is the best possible person suffering the worst possible circumstances. That is what is at the very center of our faith. The best possible person suffering the worst possible, we'll put this up on the screen, worst possible circumstances. And so Joseph chose to respond to God as if God was actually with Joseph. Verse 2 tells us this, the Lord was with Joseph and Joseph prospered. Now, when we see this word, we should not read too much into this because, um, because what this means, it doesn't mean that Joseph prospered personally. Instead, what we discover is this, verse 3, that when the Potiphar, right, when his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord was giving him success in everything he did, right, kind of like when we say um, everything he touched turned to gold, right, when Potiphar saw this, then Potiphar made Joseph his attendant, Right? In other words, his administrative assistant. And as we're going to discover, um, Joseph ends up having pretty much everything in Potiphar's household under his um, control and under his, his management, which again might sound good to us, but here's what we need to remember. Right? In ancient times, right? in ancient times um, being born free was the absolute greatest privilege that you could ever experience. Right? It is today as well, but, but in ancient times especially, to be born free um, and, and not a slave, not a slave, that was the greatest thing that you could experience. To be born rich and become poor, um, that would be bad, right? Of course. But to be born free and to become a slave meant that whatever God that you worshipped, whatever God your family worshipped, whatever God your people worshipped, it meant that that God had abandoned you, that you had lost everything, that your life was an di utter disaster. This, this is far worse than we could ever begin to imagine because no one who is born free ever aspires to wake up one day with a master. And so Potiphar… Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed, don't miss this, the Lord on the next screen, the Lord blessed not Joseph. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian. The Lord blessed Potiphar, right, because of Joseph. To, to which we think, okay, so where in the world um, is the justice in, in this, right? I mean, why bless Potiphar? Why not bless Joseph? Why not bless the one who has responded so well to all of these outrageous circumstances? And yet, in spite of this, Joseph continued to respond as if God was with him. In fact, Joseph actually modeled for us something extraordinary because Joseph responded as if God was with him, even, even when it looked 
as if God had, in fact, abandoned him. And see, here's why this is so amazing, because Joseph has no Scripture, right? Joseph has no Bible. Joseph, there, there are no miracles that occur in the story of, of Joseph. No angel suddenly appears one night to lead Joseph out uh, of his captivity. Joseph did not have any of the benefits of, of history that you and I have when it comes to the, to the subject or understanding this idea of enduring faith. Joseph simply chose to respond to each circumstance each day as if God was with him. Which brings me to this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today. We're going to talk about it more um, next week. This, this is the question. This is one of the questions that I hope that this series will, um, will force all of us to kind of wrestle to the ground. This is, in fact, a, a life… if you get your hands and your mind around this, this is a life-changing question. How would someone in your present circumstances, how would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them, right? How would someone in your circumstances right now respond? And again, I'm not asking you to respond. I'm not asking, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm simply asking you to, to consider this question. How, is someone who, how would someone who is like you, someone facing the same circumstances of life that you're facing right now, how would that person respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them in the middle of their circumstances. And circumstances in this context, it might mean your entire life, or it could mean something very specific that's happening in your life right now. Maybe a situation in your family, maybe a situation with one of your kids, maybe something happening in your marriage or something in your job, right? How would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? And see, the reason why this question is such an important question is because whatever your answer is to this question, that answer is, in fact, an opportunity for a faith-filled response to circumstances rather than simply reacting, right? Rather than simply um, repeating, rather than simply acting out of fear or anger. Because, see, the truth is, like Joseph, all of us, right, none of us, none of us actually have any idea, any idea of what hangs in the balance of a faith-filled response to circumstances and events that we did not ask for. Don't miss that. Now, again, if you know this story, you know that at this point in the story, um, when you expect things to get better, they actually don't, and they continue to get worse. And not only do they get worse, but they get far, far, far more complicated for Joseph. Because in verse 6, we discover that Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Right? Now, understand this. Um, this has nothing to do with seduction right? This is an order. This is a command. Joseph is a slave, right? Joseph is property. And Joseph is in an absolutely no-win situation. If he refuses his master's order, he's going to be punished. And if he accepts his master's offer and his master's husband finds out, he will also be punished. And again, it's in this situation 
that Joseph feels exactly what you feel, exactly what we feel when we're in a circumstance and we try to do everything that we know to do is right, and yet somehow nothing seems to turn out quite right, and we end up asking ourselves, okay, why bother? Why do I try? Why does any of this really matter? Is any of this, is anyone even paying attention to, to what's happening right now? But in spite of that, right, in spite of that, Joseph, he continues to respond and he continues to choose a faith-filled response and not react out of anger or fear. Because in verse 8, we discover that Joseph, he refuses In fact, he says to his master's wife, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted, right? Notice the perspective here. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care, right? Next verse. No one is greater No one is greater in this house than I am, Joseph said. My master has withheld nothing, nothing from me except you. Because, in case you forgot, you are his wife. And then do not miss what Joseph says next. This is an absolutely show-stopping statement. Joseph says this, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? To which it's like, okay, Joseph, time out, sit down, we need to talk. What God are you talking about right now? You mean the God that's responsible for your current circumstance? Joseph, let's just do a quick trip down memory lane. Remember, you were kidnapped by your brothers. You're sold into slavery not once but twice. And now the person who owns you, the person who owns you is receiving all of the blessings, all of the benefits, all of the recognition of your hard work. And this is the God that you want to stay faithful to, the God who has not done anything for you lately. This God, Joseph, is that correct? Right, and Joseph, Potiphar's wife is relentless. Right, and finally, Joseph refuses not only her advances, but he refuses to even be in the same room with her. And so now she's embarrassed. And now she's humiliated. Now she's angry. And she goes and tells her husband Potiphar. And she accuses Joseph of doing the very thing that Joseph refused to do. Potiphar finds out And in verse 20, we discover that Potiphar, he throws Joseph into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And think about this. Now Joseph is paying for the crime that he avoided specifically because he avoided it. Where is the justice in that? He is suffering because he avoided doing the wrong thing. The point being, Bad things have been happening to good people for a very, very, very long time. Now, we're going to stop the story right there for today. We're going to pick it up there next week. But during the course of this week, um, I, I, I have something I want all of us to do. And you've got, I've got a question that I want you to think about. I want you to wrestle with this question. And I'll tell you this up front. Um, on the surface, this is a terrifying question. I will, I will give you that. Um, but the truth is, this is actually a very freeing question. It's a very liberating question. So I hope you take your hand out with you, take it home, put it on your refrigerator, maybe take it and put it on your mirror in your bathroom so you see it. But this is the question. 
How would someone in my circumstances respond if they were confident that God was with them? Right? Because we already know how other people in these similar circumstances, how they respond. We already know how people react. We already know what's been modeled to us. We know what perhaps maybe our friends or our family do. We know perhaps what it is that we've experienced other people doing. But how is it that someone who is absolutely confident that God is with them, how would they respond in these circumstances? Because again, whatever your answer is to this question, that answer is in fact an invitation. An invitation to a faith-filled response that has the power to redeem pain and suffering. And see, I am confident of this, and I get it. I don't know all of you. I certainly don't know all of your stories. I do not know what you are going through individually right now. I completely, that's true. I own that. But even though, even though, even though all that is true, I will tell you this. This is your best way forward, right? This is how you move forward better and not simply bitter. This is the way that that you move forward uh, in a way that actually lays the groundwork for God to do something unusual, for God to do something uh, extraordinary in spite of your current circumstances. Because never underestimate, right? Never underestimate the power of a faith-filled response in the midst of suffering. Because remember, There is more to your story than meets the eye. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever your experiences right now, whatever your circumstances are, those are simply a chapter of your story. They are not the entire story. Never underestimate the power of a faith-filled response in the midst of pain and suffering. So how would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God is with them. And that's where we'll pick it up together next week. Heavenly Father, I pray that for all of us today, for all of us who are here, for all of us who are watching, Father, I pray that for all of us who feel like we are struggling to believe um, that you haven't abandoned us because of our circumstance, Father, I pray that for each of us that you would remind us that the proof of how you feel about us right now, it isn't what's happening at home. It's not what's happening at work. It's not what's happening with our kids. It's not what's happening in our marriage. It's not what's happening with our job. Father, the proof of how you feel about each of us individually is what happened on the cross. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that for each of us that you would give us the courage that we need to see ourselves the way that you see us, that that you would show up in the middle of the storm. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would let us feel your presence so that we're not afraid. And Father, I pray that you'd give to each of us the faith we need to lift our voices and to worship and to call out to you in the middle of the storm. Jesus, we pray all of this in your matchless, powerful, 
and holy name. The name of the one who has saved us and redeemed us. The name of Jesus.